Hello there, it's Emily Taylor and it's the Don't Look Down podcast that we're talking and discussing and chatting to people about how they get their life in order after sort of traumatic experiences. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. Thanks to all the listeners and the feedback that I've had. My real aim and hope is to help others and hopefully by people on this show sharing their stories it's inspired you to go and get some help or talk to somebody that you know might be in a bit of a dark place or struggling. Now this week I am going to be talking to the brave and beautiful Harriet Ernston Evans. Now Harriet was just 25 and she nearly died after giving birth to her first daughter and was diagnosed with a life-changing physical condition but this also came to Harriet after years of battling with her mental health. She now is very fortunately happily married with two children and she tells us about managing both her physical and mental health and how she's coped with the diagnosis but also really importantly here found some inner peace. This has been a privilege for me to have had Harriet on the show talking about some very personal circumstances and episodes that have happened. So I want to thank Harriet for really opening up and welcome to the show and enjoy. Pleasure to have you. Thank you, lovely to be here. Obviously you're my friend of 10 years. Indeed. And we know each other relatively well. Pretty well, yeah. And you've helped me out on numerous occasions. So I'm very grateful for that. So, um, let's talk about how we met. Okay. Are you going to tell the story or am I going to tell the story? We both can. Okay. You, you can tell the story. Okay. You can start it. So, when I was 19, I joined the paper as a journalist, as a, as a rookie journalist, and you were already there. You'd already been there quite a while, hadn't you? Yes. In sales? Yes. And, uh, yeah. Typical salesperson, through and through. Yeah. And then you used to call me up and ask me to, from downstairs, and ask me to write stuff for you. Yes. And that sort of evolved. I spied you from the start and was like, yes. yes. She is a good journalist. You're like, I can make her write things for me. Yeah, deadline, half five. Yeah. <laughs> Deadline's already gone. Harriet. Yeah, no, you're trying to write a paper, but <laughs> if you could. Can you please squeeze this in for a thousand me? Thousand words, 15 minutes, go. <laughs> What's it about? I don't know, make it up. It'll be fine. <laughs> just, just write something. No, but you did help me out of lots and lots of... Uh, tricky situations on a deadline with that but then I did kind of you know repay the uh the favors by um tagging you along to the old restaurant reviews you did I feel like you took me under your wing a little bit yeah and especially when I moved to Redditch and I didn't really know that many people and you were like 
like a co-older sister who looked after me. Yeah, and we instantly got on and instantly yeah. liked each other. So yes, we helped you move a few times. Yeah, just, a, just few. a few. It's like yeah, I've, I know you've just moved me, but I'm moving again. So can we, you know, use Mark's van? Yes, that's fine. <laughs> no, but the last time you were like, we're never doing this yeah, again. Yeah, we're never doing it again. And I kept you to that. You've never have to had to move me again. That was the last time. That was and into now the last you time. don't live in Redditch. I know. You live in Telford. Yeah. But here we are, still in touch and still sharing brilliant, funny moments together. And there's been lots. There has, yeah. There's been lots. Probably not appropriate for a podcast. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> we'll Happy leave those ones and olives and... Yeah. Just memories. Yes, but all good. Yeah. So, um, you have lived so far a very interesting life from lots of different angles of it being up and down up and down is definitely yeah highs and lows yeah big highs and big, quite big traumatic lows. Yeah. lows so let's start from the beginning and i want to start on a bit of a positive and what i'm doing with everybody on the podcast is i'm asking what three things are you most grateful for in life other than your friends and your family? Um, so my first one that sprang to mind straight away is health. I think having had health problems and having seen a lot of other people go through health problems, I think you can never underestimate how amazing it is to be living, to be able to function um, and to, to be in relatively good health. So that's definitely my number one. Mm, brilliant one. Um, my second one is um, knowledge, which probably sounds a bit of an odd one, but I think being able to learn more each day, being able to have a career where my knowledge expands, um, I think is amazing. And there's a lot of people in the world that don't have access to that kind of thing and don't have access to the type of education I've had, whether it's been formal education or whether it's been things I've just learned along the way. Brilliant. So I think that's a massive thing. And my third one is laughter and comedy, I think. Oh, um, definitely. The only dating advice my mum has ever given me, um, which I think was really good advice, was marry someone who makes you laugh. Oh, God, yes. Which is like, uh, that's what I'll tell my children when they're old enough to think about that. Me too. Um, just, you know, life would be a bit rubbish without laughter and without comedy, and so I'm very grateful to have a lot of that in my life. And they say that laughing is the best medicine. It and is. it really is. It really is, is a cure. Like, you, you probably should go for traditional medicine as well, but yeah. Yes. <laughs> and you should. <laughs> but it's true. You can have the day from hell and then, like, you know, if you go home and your partner makes you laugh or, like, when we're together, oh my God, we're yeah. always laughing. Yeah. Um, there has been times that we've cried lots, but... And then sort of laugh, cried and laugh, cried. Laugh, cried. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I love those three. They're brilliant. And the oh. fact you didn't even have to think about them. Just like, <laughs> yeah, they were brilliant. So, let's start from the beginning again and um obviously you have suffered with anxiety and depression and panic attacks yeah and you suffered with that from a young age it's yeah. always kind of been in your life yeah so what um what age was he that you started suffering from what whatever it was whether it was panic attacks or depression i think in terms of um sort of any formal diagnosis um i was 10 
Um, and after a, a car crash that happened just a couple of days before my 10th birthday, hmm. uh, eventually I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress uh, disorder from that. But I think when I look back, there's always been elements of anxiety there. There's always been elements of these um, doubts um, and worries that probably went beyond what would be a normal level of doubt and worry for a child yeah um so i definitely think it's something that i've been predisposed to but in terms of kind of the the first trigger probably would be age sort of just before my 10th birthday and you think that was from sort of post-traumatic stress yeah from um, the crash and, and where did that then lead it was it was it depression that you felt down or was it anxiety or, or all of it always been a combination of both okay. for me and it's at times in my life the anxiety has been more prevalent at times it's been the depression at times it's been both and thankfully at times it's been neither but but sort of always those two really okay so where did it go from there obviously being young and having been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress did you feel that um, that was managed well for you from the doctor's point of view? Was you referred? Was it, did you feel that you were dealt with properly and there was the services there to help you? No, but I think part of that was probably from my end that I didn't feel able to or comfortable to vocalise just how, how bad I felt. Um, and I think that that people realised kind of some of the extent of it and things like being very nervous in cars and, and then you're always experiencing flashbacks and nightmares and all those kinds of things. But I don't think I really opened up about just how traumatic it had been for me and just how deep those those wounds kind of were for mm. me. Um, mm. And it's only sort of an, as an adult that I've looked back and thought, wow, I felt really quite alone. Um, because I felt like I couldn't really talk to my parents mm. about it, even though they've always been very supportive of me, but kind of felt like I was a bit silly for feeling how I did. And I saw my mum getting on with her day-to-day -day life after the crash. My sister was very young, so kind of wasn't affected in the same way. Um, and I felt like I was the only person that, that was struggling. And then that caused that feeling of, well, why am I struggling? That must be, mm. it must be my fault that I'm struggling. And of course, you know, as a 10-year-old, you can't, understand the the real ins and outs no. and the intricacies of, of mental health and post-traumatic stress and all of those things they're very adult concepts that you just wouldn't explain to a child so how's a child supposed to understand them yeah and at what age do you think you did know yeah there's something okay I don't feel right or I feel different because that must have been awful to have felt alone yeah and then have those feelings because you know, a lot of people that suffer with either post-traumatic stress or depression do feel alone and yeah. do feel ashamed to yeah, say how absolutely. they feel because you can see, you, th you think this conception of other people getting on with their lives, but you don't really know what's going on in anyone's lives. Absolutely. And isn't and you, that a recurrent think, theme yeah, in terms of mental it? health? <clears throat> Anyone completely. with mental health problems. And, and it took me a long, long time to talk so openly about my, my own mental health. And it isn't until you start having those conversations with people that you think, gosh, like, you know, there's a lot I'm, of us. I'm not alone. Yeah. Yeah, completely. But as a child, to yeah. voice those emotions is, is incredibly difficult. You don't have the language. You don't have the kind of emotional maturity and intelligence to be able to, to say. To figure it out. Yeah. yeah. It, it takes a long, long time. And I think it almost took me being very unwell 
with my mental health as an adult to look back and realise just how and where strong that had been throughout my life. Mm. I always knew it had an impact on me, but I don't think that I ever realised truly the extent of that impact for a long time, probably sort of 14, 15 years. Okay. So your teens, what were they like? Because <laughs> obviously you're a likeable person. You know, you, 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 you're brilliant to be around. And you definitely hide it well until you get to know you. Yeah. Um, so, age 12, I was in a very difficult place, as a lot of teenagers are. You, I mean, you go and speak to any 12-year-old girl, I'm sure they're kind of struggling with, with things, no matter how smooth or rough their ride has mm. been so far. Um, for me, 12 was the age when I began self-harming. Okay. Um, and that was... Again, probably born out of a place of, of loneliness, of fear of my own feelings, of not knowing how to... You know, as adults, we know what our outlets are, we know what makes us happy, we know who we can talk to, who we can confide in. But as, as a child, I, I didn't know how to access that support. Mm. And so that kind of recurrent theme of feeling quite lonely and how I felt was always there. Um, you know, I'd gone to a, a very small primary school, so to then go into a, the much bigger, wider world of secondary yes. school and, you know, you've got all those pressures, normal pressures Scary. that teenage girls go through oh, gosh, and yeah. starting to be very conscious of what you look like and, and how many friends you've got and if you're and cool or not cool. Oh, and competitiveness. With oh, and I went to girls' schools as well. So okay. Oh, so you went to an old girls' school, right. Yeah, all the way through until I was 16, I was just with girls and then sixth form was a very small amount of boys, so my life has been predominantly surrounded by girls. So of course you're going to um, be very aware of all those things that all teenage girls go through. But I yeah. think having already had a background of, of quite unstable feelings and, and quite bad feelings, that was really exacerbated then. Yeah, it's another trigger, isn't it? Absolutely, to them. yeah. So the self-harming, did you keep that to yourself? Was you able to hide it from your parents or your friends? Did people know? Um, people found out, a couple of people at school told the teachers who then told my parents. Right. Um, so it became kind of common knowledge in inverted commas, but I would then still try and hide it when, uh, when it was kind of happening in the future. Um, so how did it make you feel when people knew? Because obviously that's self-harming. I don't know a lot about it, mm -hmm. but it's something that's for you and that you hide. Yeah, it's very And it's personal, those inner yeah. feelings, isn't it? Yeah. So how did you feel then knowing that your parents knew? And I felt, ash I felt ashamed. I felt that I wasn't good enough. Um, I felt that I'd let people down. Mm. Um, and, and I just felt very angry about about what I was going through and about what was happening in, in my well, life. Well, at 12 and 13, you, you, you're going to be angry anyway, especially Absolutely. with everything else that had gone on. So yeah. did you did your parents get you any support there? Um, I tried things like counselling at, at different times, but I think that a lot of the problem was I wasn't really ready to... You know, now I will quite happily sit in a room and talk yeah. to anyone about my mental health. I think it's really important. I feel very passionate about that. But at 12, 13, how are you meant to sit in a room with an adult yeah. and say, actually, this is this is why I've been self-harming? Because you is... probably didn't really know yourself. You was just doing it. No, yeah. I mean, very much <clears throat> now I'm kind of talking about it as an adult. Looking back. Looking back. But yeah, as a child, I mean, how do you process that that's 
what your life has come to mm. and what you're doing. And I think there is a stigma. I mean, there's a massive stigma yes. around mental health as a whole. But in terms of self-harm and in terms of the amount of teenage girls, particularly that um, are self-harming, I think it's seen as, oh, well, it's just attention-seeking. Which my argument has always been, actually, if you've got to get to the point where you are physically harming yourself for attention, that is a problem in itself. Yeah. It's a different problem to why I was doing it, but it's still a problem and it needs to be addressed. Um, so there is that shame there and there is that stigma there and, um, and it marks you out as being different. And of course, as a 12, 13 year old girl, all you want to do is kind of not Blended. stick out from the crowd for all the wrong And then reasons. when you get to adulthood, you then want to be different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is what I discovered. Irony. I always yeah. knew I was slightly different. I wasn't always into the same things, you know, the whole take that and the Spice Girls. Yeah, they were good. But I was like, this isn't really what I want to go out and listen to. Yeah. You just you discover yourself when you become an adult and you're like, oh, actually, God, I yeah. want to go my own way. Yeah. And that is what I really try and instill with my daughter. Like, yeah. And I'm think outside the box, too. but it's easier said than done. Yeah. So what advice would you give for people listening to sort of think, okay, I'm self-harming, I'm keeping this to myself, I've got all these strange, weird feelings going on. What, what advice would you give to those people who might be listening? Um, I think one of the key things is to do what you can because actually if it is not feasible to say oh just stop self-harming and seek some other help it, it doesn't <clears throat> happen like that no. does it but what can you do today to move yourself towards that goal and if it is telling the first person you've not told anyone and if it is that you have to write it down or you put it in a text or you write a note and pass it to someone because you can't say those words out loud then that's something to give some consideration to. You know, you can seek support like the Samaritans or various other mental health groups where you don't need to tell them who you are. You don't need to know that person. The confidentiality is Yeah, there. so if you need to be anonymous and you need to seek that support anonymously, then absolutely do that your way. But um, it is very individual. I don't think there is any one-size-fits-all. Mm. Um, but I can absolutely, with certainty say that sharing it never makes a problem worse you know if you pick the right person to confide in and you feel comfortable with that person yes. and you know that they're not a judgmental person then actually just saying those words can be a massive relief it can and be it's not going to solve difference. it it's not going to happen today but in time you can move towards a resolution mm. and move towards starting to think about why am i doing this what can i replace these really quite negative behaviours with that would be more positive and would be a more positive outlet for my feelings. Brilliant. So I wanted to, obviously that was your sort of teenage years, obviously yeah. your, your your childhood. And I wanted to move on to something a little bit more positive because obviously okay. mental health is something that you are extremely passionate yeah. about, as am I. Yeah. Um, we've got that in common. And obviously working for the newspapers you covered lots of different stories you're always interviewing people mm -hmm. um about mental health issues that were in redditch yeah so you um tell us about the mental health group that you co-founded um what inspired you to do so okay so the summer of 2012 uh there were very very sadly two deaths um in the same place within a month of each other mm. i covered both stories um, I went to both inquests um, and I began to get to know the families. They were both amazing families of, of the men that died and they did a lot of work around um, lobbying the council for safety measures at that location. Mm. 
Um, and at that time, I was also talking to the um, councillor who held the portfolio for community safety at the time, Rebecca Blake. Um, and we began kind of talking about, well, what these families doing were doing was amazing. Yes. But could there be more done um, about mental health generally? Because Always, if it was something yeah. we were interested in, then would other people be? Um, so we eventually got to the point where we said, right, let's let's hold a meeting. Let's see who comes. Um, and I remember having numerous conversations beforehand um, about what I would tell people at that meeting. Mm. Um, because at the time, very few people knew. I think you knew and, yes. and a few other people. My family obviously knew that mental health was a sort of recurring theme in my life. Um, but it wasn't public knowledge, certainly. And I didn't want to stand up in that meeting and say, oh, well, you know, I'm a journalist and that's why I'm holding that meeting. Because it really wasn't the You reason. wanted to make it more personable so people feel that they could also share Absolutely. how they were feeling. And, um, you know, to use the old cliche of, oh, if you had a broken leg, you wouldn't worry about telling people that. So I went ahead and, and in that meeting I said, it's quite so honestly, true, though. It's so the point. Absolutely. Um, and I stood up at the start and just said, you know, this is why this is why I care and right. I do care. So 30 people turned up to that first wow, meeting. Wow, the first meeting. Yeah. Okay. And it was just incredible to think people have turned out to listen to what we have to say about it. Um, and that evolved into the Mental Health Action Group. Um, and we held monthly meetings and we held various wellbeing events. We took... Um, we took mental health to places where you wouldn't necessarily be talking about it. Yeah. We took it to schools, we took it to the leisure centre, we took it to the shopping centre. Um, we did a, quite a lot of work and I was very lucky at the time. Um, my editor, Ian, was very open to um, doing more on mental health. Yes. So we got quite a lot of good, really good coverage. Um, it was brilliant. And it was such a positive thing and the, the, the group's still going today. Um, I stood down when I was pregnant with my second baby because I felt like I couldn't give it the time it deserved but I really miss it I met the most phenomenal people made the most amazing friends and and helped people just being able to stand in a shopping center you know I remember standing in the Kingfisher on numerous days and people coming up to me and just telling me their story mm. and that's just for amazing. a complete stranger to come up to you and say I struggle with my mental health and I want to tell you my story is beyond words mm. um and you could see the relief on those people's faces and those people will never know that okay maybe they think i helped them that day because i stood and listened and i maybe gave them some guidance about organizations they could approach for yes. support but those people all helped me in a massive way and it all does, shaped my it? life in a massive it way it does it does yeah. it's, it, it, it's 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 a full circle yeah. of everybody helping each other absolutely um, and you you know were amazing and Rebecca Blake absolutely you know, yeah what, what you did for the town and the group the whole group <clears throat> yeah you were you were all amazing and the coverage in the paper made it even more you know um, aware to other people coming forward yeah and it's still going today but um obviously you moved to Telford I did, yeah and started having real babies because we always joked that that yes. Hag was my first baby yes so I had to yeah yeah concentrate on the on the actual babies <laughs> definitely so um you obviously took a bit of a dip mm -hmm. before you moved to Telford I feel like that's putting it lightly but yeah <laughs> it is which we will get to okay um if you're happy to share it so absolutely yeah um I can remember spending you know lots of 
time with you, talking to you, and knew that you suffered with depression, yeah. and then so I saw a drastic change, yeah. and a big dip, mm-hmm. um, and you were in a very, very dark place. Mm-hmm. Pretty awful, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you don't mind, and it's not too painful, would you like to sort of elaborate on that? Absolutely. And why um, it happened? Yeah, so, uh, we got to, so I was twin, 23, and... Uh, by all means, probably from an outside perspective, doing quite well with my life. I was yes. deputy editor of one paper and we were in the process of launching another paper that I was going to be the editor of um, alongside my existing role. Um, we'd set up MHAG, we were doing the first wellbeing week that October um, and I was also training to run the Birmingham Half Marathon because, you know, as if I didn't have enough on my plate with work. And Which you had. Work. I mean, how many hours did you work on those deadlines? I don't deadlines? think I slept for six months. It in was all ridiculous. Yeah. It was ridiculous. I mean, I know we joke about me, you know, phoning up on a deadline. Can you just squeeze in this little <laughs> review for me? But, you know, you were there and I was like, Harriet, how many papers are you deadlining? <laughs> yeah, we were. It was it, a it lot. It was not uncommon for me to get in at six in the morning so I could get some work done before everyone else arrived. And be there kind of at eight o'clock at night and then go home and work into the night. But that was that was the pressure of the job and I took NHAG on as an extra thing and I was so passionate about it that it didn't matter to me that I was sending emails at two o'clock in the morning or, you know, folding up leaflets or whatever it was. Um, and actually taking more and more on and having more and more on my plate was in a way because I knew I was poorly yeah. And if I crammed my day full of, you know, going to the gym, running, uh, swimming, going to work, doing MHAG, doing everything Anything possible, to take anything. your mind off the fact that you were starting to slip. Yeah. Um, so I knew in the September that I was really quite poorly. Um, and this had come off the back of kind of a couple of years of ups and downs and um, some difficult times, but some, some good times equally. Mm. Um, and we got to the Christmas... And I think having a few days off was the catalyst, really, because all of a sudden it was like someone had slammed the brakes on and I had... It stopped. Yeah, and I had that time and it was suddenly like, oh my gosh, my... I am really quite poorly and I've been hiding it for a long time. Yes. Um, I became kind of increasingly less able to function. Um, I've always been someone that's functioned with mental health held down a job, held yeah. down other responsibilities. Um, and I, I wasn't wasn't eating, not because I wasn't choosing to eat, but because I just felt so sick all the time and would throw up out of anxiety and out of stress. Um, I wasn't sleeping. I was probably averaging two, three hours a night, mm-hmm. if that. Um, I was constantly anxious, constantly very down, constantly, you know, I'd text a friend and they wouldn't text back for 10 minutes and it would be kind of the, the worst, worst thing in the world yeah. and, oh my gosh I've upset them what have I done and just this real panic about everything um some days kind of getting up and getting dressed and going to the shops was too much and other days I was in complete overdrive and working 22 hours in, in a day yeah. and it was, it was just, just for, it was just there was no consistency and obviously no. you can't any nobody can can carry on functioning on that amount of sleep no. not eating properly trying to manage so many different things yeah. in your life there's going to come a point where you crash, you crash. And burn. yeah mm. um 
so it was very, very apparent that, that I needed some help by this point and um, I was self-harming again. Um, at some point it ended up that I was never actually meant to be on my own. Um, my mum and yes. dad spent a long time driving up to Redditch one night. I called your mother. I think I turned up at your house you one did. night, didn't I? You did. Um, Becky was, I, I almost lived with her for quite a number of months. I, uh, but then, you know, someone would be at my house looking, looking after me and, and I'd just wander off and I'd spend hours walking around um, or sitting on a bench somewhere yeah. and just, life was very chaotic and I just kind of, you know, some days I'd get up and the anxiety would be overwhelming. Some days I'd get up and the depression would be overwhelming. Some days I'd stare at a wall for seven hours. Like mm. it was... There was no sense in any of it. You couldn't... No, it was just a downward spiral, I Absolutely, suppose. yeah. And was... at what point did you think that's it? I've had it, I've had it. I can't so cope with this anymore. I was going <clears> to the doctors <throat> and I was trying to access support. Was um, you on medication? Did they give you? Yes, yeah. from the January I'd gone on um, tablets. I'd always been reluctant before, but I went on to medication from the January to try and um, sort of stabilise things. Nothing was really having any effect. Yeah. Um, I was very much, by the time it got to the sort of April, May time, begging for help. Um, you know, there'd be a number of times where ambulances were called because I was yeah. found quite unresponsive because the panic attacks were so severe and I was just so unwell. Um, you know, I wouldn't turn up for work some days and my colleagues would have to come and try and find yeah. me. It was, it was just a mess. <laughs> a mess is the only way I can describe yeah. it. And It was worrying. Um, it got to the point where um, I had a, an appointment with the crisis team and I um, told them that I'd been stockpiling medication. Um, and they said, okay, we'll get you a, uh, an appointment within two weeks. You keep yourself safe for two weeks and we will, you'll be able to see someone. Two weeks. Two weeks. Right. Um, but I, so I had that goal in my mind and I kept myself relatively safe for two weeks. And the two weeks came and went, heard nothing. So I rang them up, explained, um, and the quite rude woman on the end of the phone basically said to me, we'd never have promised you two weeks. Um, you'll get an appointment when you get an appointment. Just so let down. Absolutely. I mean, the very fact that there There's were two no other adults in the room with me when that was promised, so I, that wasn't me making it up, no. you know what I mean? That was said quite explicitly. And this is the issue, isn't it, mm -hmm. with the crisis team? And just being people being understaffed there. I think there's I think there's five over the whole of Worcestershire now in the crisis it's team. Chronic, absolutely um, chronically underfunded. It's terrible and understaffed. Um, and that felt very much like the door had been slammed in yeah. my face. Another another one. Yeah. And how do you carry on every day knowing that you are being what you see as a burden to your family and friends? That there's no enjoyment anymore when you see your family and friends because they're just looking at you with this pained expression on their face like what are we going to do with her you know my, my friends and family were incredible absolutely amazing so supportive but they're not miracle workers and they also don't have access to therapies to tablets to anything that was going to no. make me better all they could do was try and keep me safe and I was a grown yeah. woman so I was well within my rights to go and go for a walk by myself if I wanted of to course, but um, the worry on them as well yeah absolutely um so 
Um, I took an overdose and I rang, uh, my best friend Manda happened to ring me about half an hour afterwards. Um, and I remember saying to her, um, if I tell you something, promise you won't get angry with me. She was like, no, that's just, you know, you, you tell me whatever you want to tell me. And I, t I told her and I told her how many tablets I'd taken. And she said to me, just a second, I've just got to do something and I'll call you right back. And uh, she rang an ambulance and she rang my mum. And both of them at that point were 45 minute drive away from yeah. me. Um, so the ambulance arrived and I was taken to A&E and my mum and Amanda came up and met me. And this was very late on the Friday night. Um, they gave me the medication to, to get the, what I'd taken out of me. And at 2am on Saturday morning, I was discharged from the hospital from A&E and told that someone would ring me on the Saturday. Mm. That was the follow-up support. Yeah. Surprise, surprise, no one rang me on the what Saturday. What a surprise. Yeah. I mean, it's just... You... And I have to say, I love the NHS. I'm a very big advocate of the NHS. And I am. Because sometimes it doesn't half let people down. The and system, it's such a shame. Not the people within it, the system. It is the system. And the funding and the staffing levels. So I didn't get a call on the Saturday. And that weekend was just... Abysmal. Awful. Um, I stopped at Becky's house on the Sunday night and I remember just not even being able to make eye contact and I was aware that they were trying to talk to me and I just couldn't... Even focus on them or... Yeah. I couldn't have a conversation. You were numb. You were numb. I, um, and I got up on the Monday morning and I thought, right, I'm just... This is it. I can't... I actually can't do this anymore. Um, and I left all my stuff, you know, I think I left my phone and my... Everything. Um, and I walked back home um, and I took another overdose and um, I was very lucky that, that Becky rang work and said, this is how it turned up and they said no and she came and physically broke down my bedroom door yeah. to get to me, um, called the ambulance, went into, um, and your brother was there, he was yeah. on shift that day and he was so incredibly kind to me. He, he yeah, oh. I mean, it's easy for me to sit here and talk about my brother, but um, you're not the only very, very close person that my brother's managed yeah. in this kind of situation. So, yeah. He it's... was one of the people that will always stick in my memory, not just because he's your brother, um, but just how, how very kind. And he came back after his shift was over to check I was he okay. He always does. I know. We're going to get upset now. I know. Don't look well, at it's, <laughs> it's a joke because we, I say, oh, you know, we'll be walking around town or we'll be out in a restaurant and someone will come up to me and go, oh, you looked after my nan, or, oh, you looked after my friend, and, oh, so I call him Saint Daniel. And obviously, I'm really, I'm like, oh, my mum's like, oh, no, he's just such a wonderful boy. He always was from a, from a young child. And I'm like, say Saint Daniel again. But he really is. He was. And he goes over and, uh, and above, so I'm, I'm glad that he yeah. was there. Yeah, and that was so comforting to have that familiar face there. And I remember the phone call as well, oh, so, gosh. yeah. <laughs> we won't go into that, no. though. <laughs> So uh, I was there for two days because they had to get me physically so well enough. So you wasn't discharged this time? No, they yeah. had to get me physically well enough to be assessed by the mental health so team. So how long had it been from the first overdose to the second? The first one was the Friday night and the second one was the Monday morning. Right, that very, very close together there. Yes. Yeah. So um, on the Wednesday, I was assessed as being physically well enough to have a mental health assessment. Yeah. Thank God my mum had said to me, I've got to go to work this morning. I'm coming back. Mm -hmm. Do not go into that room without me. Good. I need to be there because she recognised that um, most people who know me will know that I have quite a, a big voice and I'm not afraid to use it in a lot of situations. I wouldn't have you any other way. But in that situation, I couldn't advocate for myself. No. It was like being a child again. 
I just didn't have the fight in me. It's different when you're talking to someone else and advising someone else, but when it's yourself and you're in that mental state. I just didn't have where you're the fight lost, to do it. No, you do need somebody else. So my mum came to It's a good job I wasn't about. <laughs> <laughs> but your mum was more than capable. Oh, wow. Yes. So she, the lady went through um, this series of, you know, this questionnaire with me. Um, I stated repeatedly during the meeting that my, it was my intention to keep... Um, keep self-harming and keep taking overdoses. At the end, she said, okay, right then, so you can be discharged and we'll follow up in the community. And I remember my mum was just, just putting her hands out and just going, no. And I remember saying, I work in the public sector and I understand how underfunded you are, but you are not. She has just told you she's going to kill herself. If she does that, it's on you. You will find her some support. I'm taking her back to the bed now that she's on in AMU. And I will not be moving her and I will not be taking her home until you do something. And the woman just looked at my mum and I think she thought, yeah, she's pretty serious about this. Yes. Uh, so they found me a bed and um, it was my decision whether I wanted to go in voluntarily um, to the mental health ward. And it was the most difficult decision I've ever made, but the best decision yes, I've ever so made was. in my life. Um, I absolutely wouldn't be here now if I hadn't gone into that, that ward. And it was the oddest time. Um, I came to visit you. You did. You did quite and we a few had lots times. of walks around the, uh, the lake. Yes, yeah, once I was allowed out. Because you was allowed yeah. out then. Yes. Yeah. So I'd be like, right, I'm coming up. We're not going to stay in. We're going to go out for a walk, yeah. be in the fresh air. You know what? I used to pace the corridor waiting for my visitors. And I was oh. so lucky because when I was in there, some of them had no visitors. Yeah. And... I had like someone every day and people would come and take me out and people would like bring me stuff yes. and just was so supportive. And then you realise, you know, when you see other people, you think, God, you know, I'm really lucky to have these yeah. people here and, and some people don't. Known that yeah. I was lucky, but being in such an awful, awful place, you realise just how lucky you are with friends and family and yes. support. Absolutely, yeah. So what was it on that mental ward that made you better again i think it was a combination of things i think it was being forced to stop and not have all these things going on and to really focus my mind on sort of what was important and having that time and space just to start that healing process yes um medication obviously played a part in it having access did they to change therapy. your medication they did yes yeah they so also it was gave reviewed. me something to sleep which was Incredible. I remember waking that makes up a massive just, difference, doesn't yeah. it? Because I mean, gosh, you know, people that don't have mental health problems, oh, if I don't sleep well for a night, yeah. oh, the next day I'm no good for nothing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, sleep and it heals the body. Absolutely. Um, and then just having the time and space to, you know, I was writing every day. I was just sort of using my mind creatively rather than just writing So you work. found that again, you were able yeah, to pick up the pen, absolutely. start the creative flow. Yeah, and just reassessing and thinking, right, I've been given this chance, I have to do something positive yeah. with it now, I can't waste this because not everyone no. gets that second chance. No. Not everyone gets that, that time and space that I needed to heal. But it's a shame that you had to go through what you went through and how long before you got that place. Absolutely. And this is the thing that I wish we could all change. And I know the country and, you know, Prince Harry and William and heads together and mind, you know, if we're trying to push for it, but we're up against it. Absolutely. There's some phenomenal work taking place in Redditch and in the country as a whole, but 
we are a long way from where we need to be and yeah. there are people who are being let down and whose voices aren't being heard and it's it's tragic it's really tragic mm. um it's it's an epidemic isn't it mental health it is. and we need to reverse that trend the one thing that i have noticed because obviously mental health has always been something that's been in my life not yeah. so much with myself but with with my family yeah um you know I've grew up with people that have suffered with real manic depressed yeah. um, depression. So, um, and I just think that people are talking more. Mm-hmm. There isn't as much shame about it. And I yeah. think some of the celebrities have got big parts to play in that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Stephen Fry. Yeah, massively. Brian so. Gordon, you know, mm-hmm. um, Fern Cotton, people like that that are speaking out about about their and you know yeah. people do think oh well they're celebrities you know they've got money they've got this but we're all human it doesn't discriminate it of could be anyone of you course. know people would have looked at my life and said what, what she feels like yeah and, and that's it it's the whole judgmental thing but i yeah. think the more that people are speaking out and the more that people are doing podcasts and you know the royal family obviously doing that i think people are starting to feel that they can talk yeah that's one difference one one positive that i've, I've noticed over the years yeah I think as well, we all have a responsibility to, if you know anything about mental health or you have any experience that you feel able to share, um, you know, it's great that people with that big platform are doing it, but I think all of us in our individual lives need to yes. as well, because, you know, one in four, you you know someone who's got mental health issues, yeah. and what can you do to have that conversation with them? Definitely. Um, if you can see someone struggling, you know they're struggling reach out to yeah. them or even if they're not just having that conversation where it's normal to mm. say oh actually yeah I wasn't at work last week because um I struggle with anxiety and it was particularly bad last week yeah. or this is how I'm feeling because right you now. do you know you phone up and you, you make up an excuse yeah. it's anything rather than saying I'm actually really clinically depressed yeah I'm absolutely. actually in a really dark place I can't get out of bed because I'm having severe panic attacks you know people will phone up and pull that old sicky won't they rather yeah. than actually saying and I think mental health should be more addressing workplaces as well absolutely i think as you know employers have a real responsibility that actually if someone rings you and says i'm in a really bad place with my mental health and that's why i'm not in work today what are you doing Mm. um because if you're not doing the same or more than you would do for an employee that's got a physical health condition then you are letting them down you're letting your company down um and you're letting people as a in a wider sense down because Mm. It's everyone's responsibility. It's not someone else's job to sort it out. It's everyone's job. And I know that sounds a bit sort of wishy-washy and but it's idealistic. But it is. And it is, it is the basics, isn't it? You know, it's not anything complicated. It is just the simple things. Yeah. Definitely. So, after that, a very difficult yeah. period. You, you were on the road to recovery. Yeah. You started to feel well again. Mm-hmm. You'd return to work. Yeah. Yeah, I went back to work about a month or so after I was, um, and was lucky enough again that, that my boss Ian was able to offer me a phased return and was very incredibly supportive. Yes. Um, so then, you know, a little bit of good luck and a little bit of happiness entered your life and you met a man um, that you fell in love with and mm-hmm. got married. Yeah, and indeed. fell pregnant. But then, obviously... <laughs> A little bit of bad luck happened. Yeah. So I'll let you tell the rest, Harriet. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. As so, if this girl hadn't been through enough. 
so yeah, so I uh, got pregnant, was very, very lucky um, to get pregnant very relatively quickly. Um, had a pretty normal pregnancy, um, although what is a normal pregnancy? Mm. Um, and Tell me about it. <laughs> began, began feeling not so great towards the end, the last few weeks. Um, eventually was, uh, they thought it was preeclampsia, so I was, I was induced at 37 weeks. Um, had a little girl, Alexandra, um, and very quickly, within a couple of days, it became apparent that something wasn't right with my own health. Uh, luckily, she was very well, apart from a smaller bit of jaundice. Um, so, I think she was three days old, and I was diagnosed with um, blood clots in both my lungs, mm. which was the beginning of um, quite an extended illness that resulted in me being um, on a life support machine for a number of weeks in an induced coma with multiple organ failure caused by catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome. Um, as a quick explanation, because I'm sure there will be some people that might know what, not know what CAPS is, um, <laughs> that, um, so antiphospholipid syndrome is a blood clotting disorder um, where your blood clots too easily. And the catastrophic version of it happens to a relatively small amount of people um, as a result of what the body perceives as a trauma. So it can be anything from surgery to an infection uh, to, in my case, a, a pregnancy and subsequent yeah. labour. Um, so my body had basically uh, created down. multiple blood clots across, you know, heart, um, hands and feet, uh, lungs, kidneys, pretty much everywhere. And it had taken a while for them to, to discover that it was yes, caps as well, hadn't it? Absolutely. So I was the first case in my hospital of it. Um, and was eventually transferred to the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham where there were specialists who had seen the condition before and where they had the means to be able to start treating it. Yeah. Um, but my body had been through quite a lot by this point. I'd had a heart attack. Um, I was on um, dialysis. Um, I'd lost the feeling in my right hand. Um, yeah, it was quite a long road to get to diagnosis. And very traumatic. So you, how many days had you known new motherhood and obviously your daughter? Oh gosh, so um, we were in hospital initially for 12 days. I got home actually for two weeks, um, but it became very apparent that I yeah. wasn't well enough to be home. And I went back into hospital um, for eight-ish weeks then. Um, so we'd only... I don't think I had that normal experience because no. even when she was physically was with me, yeah. I wasn't that well. No, to... I can remember calling you and being like, Harriet, like you're really breathless. Yeah. What, what, what's going See, I have no memory of yeah, that phone yeah, call. Yeah, yeah. You're, I was like, you, you, you don't seem to be breathing properly. And you're like, I'm just so out of breath. Yeah. Um, and even then I was like, this, is, this isn't right. Yeah. So obviously, you know, very, very traumatic. You obviously came out of the coma. Yeah, it took them two goes, but they got me out eventually. They got you out eventually. So you're 25 at that point? Yeah. You're 25 years of age. And I think if that had have happened to somebody a hell of a lot older, I don't think they would have made it, would they? No, absolutely. We would, They were told, um, my mum and, and my... He wasn't my husband at that point, but my no, now husband, yes. Dylan. Um, 
were told um, on the Friday that if I stayed at um, the hospital where I was at, that I had no chance of survival. If they managed to get me a bed at Birmingham, um, I might not survive the ambulance ride. And was this the Queen Elizabeth or the yes, women's? Queen yeah. Elizabeth. Um, and if I got there, I still might not survive. Yeah. But that was the only chance they had. Of course. And they're going to the go decision, for it, which course. was the best decision. Um, and they were told that, you know, had I been in my 50s, 60s, whatever, there was no zero chance. chance. Yeah. My age was the only thing on my side at that point. Yes. Um, I think it's a 39% mortality rate with caps. Right. So we're, we're very blessed and we're here talking, which I'm very grateful for. So you came out of the coma. Mm -hmm. Did you even know what had happened? No, no. I can't imagine ever being in that situation, knowing that you know, did you still realise you was a mother and that you'd, you'd, you'd got Alexandra? Yeah. Um, so they'd put pictures of, of her up around the room. Um, it's all quite a blur. So yes, I'm not I sure kind of how quickly things sunk in. Yeah. But also at this point, I've still got kind of tubes down my throat and stuff, so I'm not able to speak for the first few days. Right. Um, I had little to no movement, my hands, my... Yes. Um, you know, I couldn't sort of sip or anything like that. Um, and I'd been on pretty strong medication. So I was having, um, they call them ITU delusions. Yes. Um, so I was having crazy hallucinations. Yeah. I had Not no idea experience. what was real, what wasn't real. Um, yeah, that was almost probably the most traumatic part well, yeah, of it. Because obviously the, the, you were that poorly before that you were kind of out of it as well. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, it's then obviously trying to get your head around, you know, dealing with hallucinations, yeah. what had happened. Even the fact they Tra kept Trauma, you know, yeah. so much trauma. Yeah. It's as if you hadn't been through enough. They kept saying to me, you're in Birmingham. I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm in Telford. No, 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 we've moved you to Birmingham. I just couldn't get my head even around yeah. that. It was... It was a lot to process. So how long did it take you to get well? Um, it was a long process. Um, I had about a week and a half, I think, from when I came round from the coma um, in intensive care and then another week and a half on cardiology. So Alexandra was 11 weeks old when I came home. And very much during that time, um, it had been about doing physio and yeah. I had to learn how to, not learn how to walk because I still knew what the process was, but to actually get myself strong enough that yeah, I could. Yeah, of course, have, being physical yeah. yeah, and having that mentality as well. I mean, I'd lost four stone in I can that remember. time, yeah. um, which was a great post-baby diet, but probably wouldn't recommend <laughs> no, it to other people. No, um, <laughs> And... Yeah, so I spent a lot of time walking up and down the corridor. I had to, um, so I still only have partial feeling in my right hand. So I had to learn how to change a nappy with... Yeah. What was it like seeing your daughter again? What, how, how, how did that feel? Um, it was bittersweet because, of course, the only thing I wanted to do was to be with her. Yeah. And to be home and, and just to have that normality of course you know of of the sleepless nights of the bottles of the nappy changes of whatever goes along with being a new mum um and i felt like i almost grieved for a way in those new yeah. for those newborn days that, that i didn't get yeah um you know i didn't see her first smile a lot of those things that 
And at the time, those 11 weeks felt like forever. I mean, now they're like the tiniest part of her life. You of know, she's course, nearly four. But at the time when you're a new mom and you've just been through that and you're trying to process what's actually happened to you and then you've yeah. got the, but I'm a mom and she needs me and how yeah. is she and all oh, so many different... And you carry that guilt with you and it's ridiculous because, of course, because I don't give myself cats. Like, I probably would have just gone home and had a normal kind of, of start course, to motherhood if I could have done, but... You do feel that guilt because you weren't there for your baby mm. and she responds to, you know, she would respond to Dylan and my mum in a way that she didn't respond to me initially. She knew, clearly knew my voice from being in the womb yes. and stuff, but her bond had been developed with her dad and yeah. Nana and all the other people that had looked after her yeah. and not me. And, you know, she's still a daddy's girl now and I still think sometimes now, I mean, she'll, she's nearly four and I think, oh, is that because he had so much time with her? And in a way, that's lovely. You know, she's very close to her dad and she, do, you know, she dotes on him. But in a way, I'm like, oh, you know, mm. are, there, are there fewer cuddles? I don't think you can spend it. I mean, I've got a daughter. She's a daddy's girl. Yeah. yeah, she knows who her mom is. And they always come to their mom when they're poorly and things like that. Um, but I'm, I'm sure that you're, you know, you're a wonderful, amazing mom. And, you know, she's going to so look up to you. I mean, <coughs> what many people go through what you've, been through and come through survive and then go on to still be successful writer um and the fact that you've gone on to have another child which <laughs> yes. is the bravest thing ever bravest or stupidest one of the two <laughs> brave i'm gonna go with brave i'm gonna go with that option so tell us about your son oh obviously gosh, 18 Max. months later um how did such having him and, and having such a high-risk pregnancy affect you so um, we had come to the decision that we wouldn't have a second child um, based on the risk to my life and no one could. Um, and to the baby's life, apps unfortunately has a very, very high uh, miscarriage rate. Um, and some women sadly never um, carry a baby um, to term with apps. Um, so that was very difficult to process. You know, you're 25, you're a new mum, things have really changed for you and to then have that decision taken away from you um which may sound you know ungrateful to some because some people never get the chance to be a mm. mother and I had one very healthy very beautiful baby and was very lucky um then uh Alexandra's birthday was on the Monday I think that year and um, on the Friday uh we had two positive pregnancy tests which involved a lot of words that boom. I won't repeat now. I'm <laughs> just going to go of, with boom. <laughs> yeah, they, they had four letters in them. Yeah. Um, and a lot of sort of just looking at each other like, oh, okay then. And then once the initial kind of, wow, okay, that's definitely positive, it, it kind of passed. It was then frantic calls to numerous yes. specialists <clears> going, <throat> we have a small issue we need to deal with. Um, and I was very, very lucky. I was under the care of the team at um, Birmingham Women's as well as um, my haematologist and other specialist from, specialists from the QE. Um, and they couldn't give me any guarantees. And they were amazing. They were absolutely phenomenal and um, cared for me wonderfully. But they couldn't say what the chances were of the caps coming back. Mm. Um, and we knew that as a portion of my heart muscle is dead already that um another heart episode might not Could, yeah yeah might not have a great outcome um so 
yeah, so I was pregnant and that was that. And, and you were like, it's obviously meant to be. Yeah. This has happened. We've got to deal with it. I've got to stay healthy. Yeah. Obviously, you're going to have about a million thoughts and worries going through your head. But how do you think that you kept, because you seemed so determined when you told me, it was like, I thought, yeah, this is going to be okay. Um, in my head, the only way I could get through that pregnancy was to be positive, of to course. believe that we were taking a baby home at the end. Yes. I remember Dylan said to me, I was eight weeks pregnant and we were stood in our kitchen at home and I remember him saying to me, you are too positive, you, this is crazy. You can't be anything other though. I said to him, I have to have, yeah. to have in my head we're taking this baby home. There's no other option, is and there, at that point? I do believe, I'm not sure I believed in things were meant to be until until we were pregnant um, with Max. I associate Max. with that. But he obviously was. And because... look at him. <laughs> yeah, look at him. And you were okay. <laughs> yes. Um, the end of the pregnancy was the worst bit. Yes. It got to 30 weeks and suddenly it was like, oh, what if we've rolled the dice one too many times? Mm. What if... And to not know what's going to happen to you and to look at your... I mean, Alexandra was sort of, what, 16, 17 months at this point. To look at her and think, actually, I might not be bringing you home, your baby brother. I might not be coming mm. home. Is a, is Does the realisation hit a little bit when you're that far gone and you start yeah, to panic yeah, a little absolutely. bit? It's um, in the fears that you don't, I suppose you don't want to even speak. No, They're just in your head, aren't you? they? Yeah. And I know, you know, I, I would lie awake at night and kind of, you want to, your instinct would be to wake your husband and be like, can I talk to you about this? But yeah. how can you, how can you say to your husband, yeah, I know you went through the most horrific ordeal yeah. where you pretty much watched me on the edge of death, like hours from death. Um, while looking after a newborn. And I know that was only a few months ago, but we're gonna do it all again. And I can't guarantee you I'm coming home. I can't guarantee you that I'm bringing another baby home and I don't know what's gonna happen. And you're gonna to have to deal with the outcome of whatever happens. Yeah, how do you um, have that conversation? What a, what a burden to, to put on someone. Um, but we kind of just took it day by day. And, and um, yeah, we got to, Got to 34 weeks. Which is amazing. Yeah. We knew we weren't getting past 37 anyway. Um, we got to 34 weeks. Um, but in some ways, him being born wasn't the end of the kind of worry because we knew that the six weeks after his birth was the highest risk time. It's the highest risk time for any okay. woman is the six weeks after, after birth in terms of plotting. Right, okay. So it was very much we had to get to that six weeks before we yeah. could go. Like, right, we're, okay now. We're, we're out of the danger zone. Yeah, we're out absolutely. Of the and how did you feel? Did you feel well? Yeah, but yeah. pretty much. We had a couple of kind of minor complications that actually weren't anything really to do with... Nothing compared um, to cast, time. But no, I was sort so of... So you felt that you was managed well? Absolutely. The team were just great. Yeah. They kind of did all the right things, provided all the reassurance that they could while being realistic with me. And you the know, medication. We had some and, really yeah. hard discussions. Yeah. And every appointment was, are you sure you want to carry on with this pregnancy? Because they had to ask of me. Of course, yeah. Um, you know, and every conversation they said very bluntly to me, we have to, um, we will have to put your life above the babies if it comes to it, you know, mm. if anything happened earlier on in the pregnancy mm. before he was viable. Um, so they were very, very difficult discussions to have, but they were handled very sensitively. And I think they got the measure very quickly that I wasn't going to sit in that room and cry 
you know, in the, every appointment because, so we had a laugh incredibly and we had a yeah, joke. Yeah, and we sometimes had a you have to of... and you know what, that's courageous and that's like a, a brilliant way of being and I think that, you know, people will, I certainly for one admire you for that but how can you do anything else because you just through. Get through but, it, but not everybody can be that strong and especially what you've been through you know you've had depression as a young child you've self-harmed you've had a difficult start it's been very up and down you've done so much to help other people you nearly lose your life that you then have to bond with a daughter that hasn't had you for 11 weeks was it yeah and then you fall pregnant again with your second son and you take it day by day and you remain positive I think anyone deserves a medal it's you and your (laughs) husband and your family so you know at at least we can sit here and say that you were okay max is okay you you, you're you're happily married you've got two beautiful children and you're still here and happy yeah and i think that's amazing um obviously you do a lot of blogging yeah about motherhood yeah (laughs) So I wanted to ask you, because we see so much of it on social media, how do you feel about how pregnancy is portrayed on oh, social media? Oh, don't even get... This is like a whole podcast series in itself. I could talk for about a week about this. Um, I think that there is such pressure to have you know, the perfect pregnancy where your bump just looks the right size because heaven forbid it should be too big, too small. Um, there's a lot of pressure to kind of be glowing and to be kind of, you know, looking great and feeling great. And mm. the reality actually that it isn't. And saying I feel awful doesn't mean I don't love my child, doesn't mean I'm not happy to be pregnant, doesn't mean I don't realise how privileged I am to be pregnant when there are a lot of people that that would love to be in that situation, you know, the ability to moan, not even moan, the ability to talk openly about your own situation doesn't undermine the situations that other people are going through. Yeah. And, um, you know, my pregnancy with, with Alexandra, although I was, wasn't unwell until the later stages, I didn't, I didn't enjoy it. I, I didn't. And that's not to say that I, I look wasn't... at, I look at people and they go, Oh, I've just loved being pregnant and I enjoy I'm like, giving birth. I'm like, <laughs> no. really? No. What? What? Don't get me wrong. You know, I, I struggled massively to get pregnant. Yeah. So when I finally, after a very hard time, got pregnant, I was like, this is the best feeling in the entire world. Be... And then the sickness comes yeah. and, then the, and then the feeling different and the not being able to get into the clothes that you want to get into and the the changes within your body, the hormones, there's so many different things that you do not expect. No. That, that aren't, you aren't told. No one tells it's, you about it. It's, this is a gift. Yeah. Which it is, I do feel Smiling that. Smiling your way through all the aches and pains because you're a woman, so but you've you got to do that. But sits there and says, oh, yeah, this is what you're going to go through and this is the possibility. And then, yeah. oh, you know, it's... Like, how can you be... You can be grateful that you have the ability to grow a child because that is an amazing thing. That's pretty spectacular. incredible. But you don't have to be grateful that you've had to stop the car three times on the way to work, which is a five-minute 
to heave thing to, to chunder chunder into the drain that is not it's not great it really it's isn't and when you're that big you can't even bend down properly to do your shoelaces but oh god and you can't <laughs> your toenails can't shave your legs oh yeah don't like, be Martin. heavily pregnant in the summer no oh i was heavily pregnant in the summer yeah, yeah. see i've had a late august baby and, and a late march baby i can tell you what spring baby that's when you want to yeah, be going for definitely, it definitely definitely a coat is a lot easier to put on than trying to put on like little strappy sandals and shave your legs. Yeah, it's true. I just isn't made it? Dylan do it actually during the later stages with Alex. Yeah, and then you get these people that are like, you know, you go on social media and you're pregnant and feeling fat and horrible and really hormonal and all these different things, and then you've got someone that just filters their beautiful baby bump and they look radiant and glowing and you're like this isn't real yeah, i think you're allowed to get the rage about that it's absolutely fine it makes me ragey now and i'm not pregnant now and have no intention of being in the future and i look at like glowy pregnant people and i'm like oh yeah whatever you've probably got piles filter them. <laughs> that's so me if you know what if people are enjoying it great all power to them but this should actually be recognition that a lot of women don't. None of my friends are like, oh, it was the most amazing experience. I think it's a very small percentage that actually think that it's incredible. Have you recently done a, a blog that you got some recognition on? What was that? Yeah, CBB Was it CBB show? show? Oh, about parenting advice. Yes. You can't get me started on this. I have such a rant about everything to do with parenting. Yeah, like people are offering unsolicited advice to you. It's just not okay. Just mm. no. Don't do it. That's no. my advice. <laughs> okay. So, um, living with caps and being yep. a mom of two beautiful children. Oh, you know, you. Um, you, we've had lots of chats yep. about lots of different things that have happened to you and me in our lives. We're very similar. And you said to me, you know what? I think I found some inner peace with it now. Mm -hmm. um, for people that are listening, what advice would you give to them to sort of not let your past or living with a lifelong illness define who you are? Um, I think for me, a lot of it has been about perspective. And mm. I always say, if you woke up one day and you didn't have feeling in your right hand, you'd be pretty miffed, right? Yeah. If you wake up one day and you don't have feeling in your right hand, but there's a doctor stood next to you saying, you almost died, we've just saved your life your newborn baby's at home and she's perfectly well and you're going to get home and you're going to get to see her and you're going to get to watch her grow up mm. and you're going to get to see her do all these amazing things you wouldn't be worried about your hand anymore would you no and that's the thing perspective and we had the same again you know max was very poorly when he was born completely unrelated to my condition and thankfully only for a very short time um you know he had surgery and he came home but we saw some very 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 poorly babies mm. Um, some that didn't go home and that's your it's perspective then isn't, isn't it? it I took so my babies so. home yeah and so many people don't get to do that so yes I have days where I sit and think I wish that hadn't happened to me yes I have you know there's been a lot of frustration along the way learning to live with some of the limitations that my life experiences have put on what I can do now or who I am now but Ultimately, I'm watching my babies grow up and thrive. And how can you ask for anything more? Oh, brilliant. So, it's so true. It's so true. Um, yeah, that's kind of really touched me. And I think it's a brilliant <laughs> way to look at it because it's, you know, 
I've spent time in the children's hospital and yeah. you do see a lot. I didn't yeah. even know a world like that existed. Um, and some people don't get to take their babies home, yeah. which is heartbreaking. Um, so the fact that you have and you don't let your past define you and you the person you are today because you have, your whole life's changed. Mm-hmm. You know, there were times that me and Harriet have gone out quite a few times and got drunk and had very funny nights. And <laughs> obviously that doesn't happen for you anymore. You no. don't drink. No. You'll never drink again. No. Um, but, you know, that's it, isn't it? In a nutshell, and it is perspective. Yeah. Watching your babies grow up and thriving and yeah. enjoying life that way. You know, we're blessed and we're lucky. I think you're, you know, you're absolutely allowed to find some aspects of your life rubbish. Like, that's fine. I don't enjoy yeah. everything I do in my life. There's elements of motherhood that I don't enjoy. There's elements of, you know, everything that I don't enjoy. But if you can have some enjoyment and you can have some quality of life, then you make the most of that, don't you? You know? Definitely. It's being grateful, isn't it? And thinking I'm I'm lucky. So, um, my last question. Yeah. Apart from one, actually, because I've got a little one at the end. Penultimate. (laughs) Yes. um, You've always been so passionate about mental health and Mm -hmm. well-being, obviously, as we've established. Um, From your experiences, what advice would you give to people listening now about mental health? And I guess what's the biggest message for people that might be suffering? So I remember when I was kind of going through the worst times and people would say to me, it'll be all right. And mm. never, you probably said it to me about a million times, and never believed them. I had no faith that it would be all right. But you yeah. know what? It is all right. And there's that saying, isn't there, about yes. um, if it'll be all right in the end, and if it's not all right, it's not the end. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, although you yeah, can't see it now. All of those sort of yeah. cheesy catchphrases, but actually, you can move forward. And it might be a slow process, it'll be a really hard process, it will be the, the hardest thing you ever do, putting hard yourself road. back together. And you'll never be the same person. I, my life is constantly affected by mental health, but luckily in a very small way. Mm. You know, I have anxieties about things, I have to do things certain ways, and I know that that's a throwback to the fact that mental health is a part of my life. Yes. But you can live well with it. You can get to a point where you are happy, where you are fulfilled, where you are doing things in your day-to-day life that aren't dominated by how you feel mentally. They're dominated by what you want to do and what you want, what you enjoy. They don't make you who you are. They don't define you, do they? No. And I guess it's okay to not be okay. Absolutely. And to embrace it. Yeah, Absolutely. I've got a mental health issue. Yeah. You know what? Today I'm feeling really pants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tomorrow's another day. Yeah. And... Yeah. It is so easy for for people that don't suffer from that, you know, because, you know, I grew up with, um, you know, my mum having real manic depression and, you know, I'd sit there and I'd be like, you know, but why don't you do this or why don't you do that? You know, what about people that are in wheelchairs and this is at a young age, you know, but that doesn't necessarily make you feel better then. You know you're lucky that you're not in a wheelchair or... You know, you haven't got... It's not about <clears throat> gratitude for what you no. have or haven't got in your life. It's a very real set of illnesses that affect you in in as serious a way as a physical yeah. illness would do. So, you know, I think sometimes you kind of listen to people giving advice or listen to people talking about it and they almost make it sound really easy. Like, oh, just talk about it and it'll be fine. It's not that easy. It is It is tough. It's incredibly difficult to come back from a place where that has been so dark mm. and to get to a, a place where you feel okay. 
but it is possible. It is, it definitely. It absolutely is. And my, I kind of touched on it earlier, but my absolute advice is that if you are now in a place where you feel able to talk about your mental health, do, do it. it. Do it as loudly and as often as you can and as publicly as you can. If you don't feel able to, that's absolutely fine. But you know what? If you've got a voice, use it. Or even if you don't feel like you can, you know, not everybody can communicate and have a voice like you and I, write to somebody. Yeah. Write it down. Or just have that conversation where you say to someone, how are you? And you look them in the eye and you actually mean it and you don't want to Yeah, not, not like, how oh, are you, but fine. how are you how really? How are you? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Do that with some meaning because that can have such a powerful impact on someone else. It's so It so can. It so can. Yeah. So to end, yeah. as I do with everybody, um, what is your favourite motivational positive quote in life? And I like to call it the don't look down quote from Harriet. So I'm going to explain the backstory to it a little bit, if that's okay. I can okay. see the Dolly Parton looks yeah. on the so desk. I am a massive fan of Dolly Parton. We, she, we. Yes. <laughs> she is incredible. Um, I think everyone should read her um, story and understand that she is not just uh, a singer in a wig. Um, you know, she's done some really amazing things and, and stands for some very incredible, powerful messages. Um, so it's well known for that. Uh, I'm a Dolly fan. Um, when I was very, very poorly, uh, one of my mum's friends, Kathy, bought me a book um, called Pocket Dolly Wisdom, which has got some quotes from Dolly Parton. And I like a lot of Dolly Parton quotes. Um, but I sat in intensive care. Um, I don't think I'd seen Alex by this point for maybe five weeks. I was in quite a, you know, it, it, was, a, it was a very tough time. Yes. I couldn't turn the pages of the book properly because my hands weren't working properly. So it took me... A rather long time to read it. But you got there. But I got to page 85 eventually, yeah. probably about three weeks later. You are a fast reader though. I just couldn't turn the pages, that was the issue. I could still read it, yes. right? Just couldn't turn the pages. Um, and this quote really just resonated with me and has stuck with me ever since. And the quote is, storms make trees take deeper roots. And I don't feel like it even needs an explanation. It doesn't... But that's stuck with me and came to me at a point where I really needed that message. We love Dolly Parton. She's amazing. Yeah. She so is. She <laughs> so is. Thank you again. It's been Thank a, you. A, a pleasure. It's been lovely to chat with you. Thank you.